Take it, Chuck. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm pumped today. You're always pumped for the steam room. I'm pumped for the steam room, but I'm pumped today. Welcome, everybody. Loyal steamers out there, Ernie Johnson, Charles Barkley. Where every week we get together and we just talk. And uh, we have got a special, special guest today. Man, wait until uh, the second segment of this podcast. Very special. When we welcome Larry Miller to the proceedings and. You may know his story by now. It is. And you uh, need to know it. It is an intriguing one. It is fascinating, and that's. I'll leave it at that. Yes. Uh, until we talk to Larry Miller in the second segment. So. Uh, oh yeah, I think. Uh, I look. I. You know what's been impressive, Chuckster, in recent weeks, <laughs> is the fact that you show up here in our expansive studio. Does that mean cramped, cramped yeah, and small? Exactly. Uh, uh, okay. With some notes written down on a like a legal sheet. I got a notepad in my kitchen. Mm-hmm. That's where I spend most of my time. That's where I keep the food. Uh, <laughs> so I write down things that are on my mind throughout the week that I want to touch upon. And then you kind of whittle that down into a first of all. Or, or, or is there any whittling? Uh, that's not a lot of whittling because the first of all can be expansive. It so, can be. Uh, okay, so let me get started today. First of all, you know you have a lot of money when you get hunting nut Cheerios. I've had the regular Cheerios. First of all, you know anybody ride a motorcycle who makes millions of dollars is an idiot. First of all, zero plus zero is zero. I want to give a shout out to the number one ranked team in the world, my Auburn Tigers. I'm proud in college of you, basketball. In college basketball. I'm proud of you kids. That's a great accomplishment. You guys started out about 20 third or something, but we have the number one team in the land. They're a fun team to watch, They Chuck. are fun to watch. Man, yeah, alive. They are. I'm, going, I'm actually going down Saturday because we are retiring. We're putting Sonny Smith, my coach, up in the Raptors. You know, Sonny's been like a father. Uh, no, I mean, explain that. We're not, you're not, Sonny still does some Radio and TV, right? For yes, radio, for he does. Yeah, for, yes. So you're not physically going to put him in the rafters, but there's going to be something in the rafters for Sonny. Trust me, there's many times I want to put him up in the rafters <laughs> physically. So, so you know, Coach Smith, man, he's meant a lot to me. Him and his wife Jan. He's a good dude. He's a good dude, but you can't say Sonny without Jan. He got the best wife in the world, and I love both of them a lot. He's been a great father figure for me since 1981. We had some rough patches uh, my first couple years, but since then we've been great. I mean, you were not a joy to coach at all times? I was not mature enough to understand what he was trying to do. You know, it's Excellent a, way yeah, to put it, Chester. Yeah, I was not mature enough. I was, uh, obviously I was heavy. There aren't a whole lot of college kids who are mature enough. Yes, exactly right. But you know what? He's one of my biggest supporters and best friends ever. And uh, I just love him. I'm excited. Uh, congrats, go- Sonny yeah, Smith. Son- congrats, Sonny Smith. Uh, so that's big Auburn news. Okay, we played Missouri the other night, and we won the game. But you Missouri people, shout out to my coach, Stan Utley, my golf coach, who went to Missouri. He was texting me during the game because he thought there could be an upset, which it almost was. But after the game, you guys were chatting overrated. First of all, let's get one thing straight. You, you didn't win the game. <laughs> Secondly, y'all are Missouri. The only reason we got y'all in the SEC is to beat y'all in football and basketball. So calm down. <laughs> I love you, Quanzo. You know you're my guy. But let me tell you something, Missouri. Don't be chatting overrated. Y'all lost the game, first and foremost. 
But yeah, there have to be certain parameters for when you can. You have to win the game. Yeah, you have to win the game. Or if you, or if you're going to yell it at a player, no, no, he's yeah, got to yeah. be going one for twenty six. Yeah. That but, night. Yeah, but I'm saying though, you can't call somebody overrated if and you lose, lose the to game. Him. Yes. yes. Okay. So Missouri, calm down. You're only in the SEC for two reasons: to lose in football and basketball. Let's get that out the way. It's like saying you're overrated because you should have beaten us a lot <laughs> more, yeah. uh, worse like, than you did. Like, well, we kept it close. Stop it. All right. Uh, the Hall of Fame. I want to give my congratulations to Big Poppy. Uh, haven't met Big Poppy yet. He's somebody on my bucket list I want to meet. Congratulations to him. But I don't understand why Bonds and McGuire don't get in. And Roger Clemens. Oh, you understand the reason. I don't understand You, the you understand the thought process. Yeah, my problem with that is, Ernie, there's guys who they already think did steroids who are in the Hall of Fame or who have cheated. I don't. Listen, it was a steroid era. It wasn't five people doing steroids. Let's get that out the way. So it was clearly the steroid era. And everybody benefited from a television standpoint. Everybody benefited from a financial standpoint. But to penalize three or four guys, I just don't think that's fair. That's just my personal opinion. I want to get that out there. Listen, Bonds, McGuire, Clemens, Sosa should all be in the Hall of Fame because they grew the game. We can debate whether they cheated or not. That's fair. But Well, if they cheated, should they be in the Hall of Fame? Or are you just saying because everybody was cheating? I'm saying if we know it was the steroid era, mm-hmm. why are we penalizing four guys? That's my problem. Like, penalize Like, first of all, there are guys who did steroids who are in the Hall of Fame or allegedly did steroids or cheated before. But my problem with the steroid era is we're only penalizing four guys. That, to me, is not fair. And, every, like I say, everybody benefited. ESPN would break in every night when Bonds and McGuire and Sosa were hitting. Well, first it was McGuire and Sosa. Right. They would break in any time they were at bat when they were going for the marriage record. So we all benefited financially and television-wise. So, like I say, my biggest problem is I just don't think it's fair. We only penalize in four guys. We can debate whether they're the nicest guys in the world, but my problem is, man, don't don't have selective prosecution. Uh, so don't do that. Next? I'm not religious. I know that. But I had a religious experience this weekend. <laughs> Josh Allen. Man. <laughs> well, jo- why was this a religious experience? Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes mm-hmm. had me... Screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God. I just saw that was in the moment. Mm-hmm. That was the best football game I've ever seen. I would venture to say, Chuckster, it was perhaps the best postseason game in any sport. Oh, it's a crazy I one. mean, it, it, it's up there. It's in the conversation. It's in the conversation. I mean, you talk about guys making plays. Uh, I... Josh Allen is flat out a stud. I mean, he's slinging that thing. He's running around. Guys think they got him, but he's running away from him. And then Patrick is a terrific. He's getting that thing to Travis Kelsey and the, the little Hill kid. And Jim Nansen said it. He said, we have a chance to see our third lead change in the last two minutes. And, all was, and it happened. It happened. Uh, it was, yeah, it was incredible. It was incredible. And then overtime. Keep in mind, you know what? You know what? I think that would be a great tease for TK's segment later. Okay. I understand TK 
who is a huge football fan. Yes. Wants oh, to, I got one wants more. Wants to talk I, you know about what? that, too. I forget. We'll leave that for TK. Yeah. Nice but also, tease. But I, but Unintentional, also, but well done. But I want to give a shout-out to Big Ben Roethlisberger. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was on my list, speaking of TK. Shout-out. He's the biggest Steeler fan in the world. Mm-hmm. Still haven't introduced me to Mike Tomlin, but that's okay. Feel free to do it. I'm not getting any younger. Um, but Big Ben, hey, man, uh, career, right off into the sunset. You had a great career. I wish you nothing but the best. Thanks for all the memories. I know there's some people on the other side want to throw us rock. Hey, listen, ain't none of us perfect. Ain't none of us perfect. But strictly as a football player, man, I admire you. I appreciate you. And right off in the sunset and enjoy the rest of your life. That's it, brother. We will continue with the steam room in a second. If you listen to just one part of this steam room this week, listen to the segment that's coming up. Uh, Larry Miller joins us. Yes. I thought you'd get ready to say the legendary Tim Colley segment. I was like, oh, my God. No, you can usually take that or leave it. (laughs) We welcome you back to the steam room. Oh, yeah. Ernie Johnson along with Charles Barkley. And um, look, this is a segment that you will find powerful. It is a story of... uh, of redemption and forgiveness and grace and second chances. And it's Larry Miller's story. Larry Miller joins us. He is the uh, chairman of Jordan Brand and a longtime friend of the Chuckster. And I want to make that because I don't want everybody to know that we're glad to have Larry on, but I want to make it clear. Larry is a friend of mine. He's been a friend of mine for a long time. I just want the people listening to understand that uh, going in. I'm glad to have him on the podcast, but I want people to know we have been friends for a long time. Right. And we will continue to be friends. So now go ahead, Ernest. So you consider him a friend, Larry? I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Long time friend. Long time friend. Okay. So let's talk about your story. With all the success you've had in your career, you did that for so many years with this secret that you would not share with folks. Living with that uh, that angst and and that feeling of something that's weighing you down and that all goes back to 1965 so let's just start there i know your backstory is having uh, you know you were in a gang back then as a teenager that there had been a member of your gang who had been killed and you did something about it at the age of 16 and you take it from there yeah it was uh it was a senseless um totally uncalled for act. I was 16. I was drunk on Thunderbird and angry and crazy. And, uh, you know, Mr. White just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. He did nothing to warrant uh, me doing anything to him. And, uh, and again, it's something that I regret every day of my life. The fact that, you know, I took the life of a, a young black man is something that's eaten at me for, for many, many years, forever. Since it happened. Edward White was 18 at the time. And what can you tell me about that day and about why he was in the wrong place at the wrong time? Again, we, myself and a few others, we're mad, we're drunk, and we just decided we were going to go look for somebody, uh, a member of uh, the other gang that had killed my, my gang member. And we just, like I said, we just happened up on him and you know, had a no, brief conversation with him. And uh, and again, it's kind of foggy for me because I was I was drunk, but I just remember having a brief conversation with him and then shooting him. And, and then we just walked away. And again, at that point, 
um, like I said, it, I was drunk, crazy, and I regret regret it every day. So, living with that, what was your thought process for? Is like somebody gonna find out about this? While I'm I'm in a position of doing some great things with my life, what's the the Ernie used the word angst? What's that like to like? worry about that every single day no matter how much success i have this thing is going to come out you know charles that, that, that's that's something that i did worry about every day it ate at me um i had recurring nightmares about getting caught about somebody finding out about me or going back to jail for something that i didn't do or whatever but i had recurring nightmares um migraines uh, to the point where i uh ended up in the ER a few times just because of migraines and nothing physically wrong. It was just the stress and the angst that I was holding in from being, uh, from being found out. And, you know, every day I was concerned that somebody would tap me on the shoulder and be like, Hey, aren't you, or didn't you? And, you know, that was something that, that I was worried about and concerned about every day because nobody, I mean, Charles, I've known you for, 20 years or so, and you knew nothing about this, neither did MJ or any of the other folks that I worked with. And uh, for all those years, my goal was to try to keep this from coming out. And, you know, finally, my daughter, my oldest daughter, convinced me that um, that this was a story that could be inspirational and motivational to some folks to see, you know, where I've come from to what I've been able to do. And uh, she convinced me that we should we should tell this story. So her and I started working on um, on this book, and um, and that, that's that's how it came out. But it was it, it was tough every day, worrying about like, hey, is somebody going to find out about this? And then you know, I put myself in these high profile jobs that enhanced the chance that something would come out. And you know, fortunately for me, it, it, it never did. And and I think uh, one of the other benefits of this is that I get to tell the story on my own terms versus it coming out and then I'm having to react to it. Right. You did, just so people understand, you did four and a half years in prison for this murder. And so um, it wasn't like it happened and nothing ever came of that. And so there there it is on the record. Um, so when would it come up in, in job interviews? You know, uh, so... When I was about to graduate from Temple uh, with my, I have a degree in accounting. I was about to graduate from Temple. And uh, it was one firm that I was kind of focused on and uh, went, spent the whole day there interviewing, had a great day with, with all the folks there that I talked to. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, should I share my background with, with these folks uh, since we're, you know, we're in serious conversations. So I got to the last person and it was the hiring manager. And, um, I thought about us, you know what, I'm going to share, share with him. So I start to tell him about my past and about, you know, how I went to jail, got my degree, start to tell him all of this. And I could see his face changing as I'm talking to him. And uh, finally I got done and, and uh, he said, wow, that's an amazing story. I'm sure you're going to be do great. He reached in his jacket pocket and he pulled out an envelope. He said, you know, I have, an offer here that I was all ready to give you, but I can't give it to you now. I can't take that chance and I'm sure you'll do fine. At that point, I decided that I wasn't going to 
share it anymore. If it came out or somebody asked directly, I wasn't going to be dishonest, but I wasn't going to volunteer the information. And my first job with Campbell Soup Company, uh, the question on the application was, have you been convicted of a crime in the last five years? And the answer was no, it had been longer than five years. So, and from that point on, if there was a question, it was, there was a time limit on it. So it was past the time limit. Um, but as things kind of went on, uh, you know, it was based off my resume and other things. But, but yeah, after that, I decided that I wasn't going to share it anymore. And I, that's kind of when the secret was born. So Larry, who and when did you turn your life around? Who, because somebody had to get in your ear and when did you make a conscious effort like, I'm going to do the right thing from now on? Because you obviously, clearly, because uh, our relationship, you've been very successful in, in your life. Who was it or how many? It could be more than one person. But when did you make that point like, I'm doing, I'm turning this thing around? So after I did the four and a half years for, for the homicide, I kind of got out knocked around uh, in and out of jail for petty stuff. And then I ended up going back to jail for a bunch of armed robberies. I ended up getting a sentence of four to 10 years for, I had like four or five armed robbery charges. And um, when I got to the prison, they had a program there where you could take college classes inside the jail and then you could qualify to move into these trailers outside the jail and leave every day and go to school and have to be back to the trailers by eight o'clock that evening. And I was like, man, that's how I want to do my time. So the motivation for me was, it was a better way to, 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 to do my time. But once I got into it and started taking classes and I, you know, I was doing really well and talking to a number of the counselors and people that were coming in, there were about uh, four or five colleges that were teaching classes inside the jail, Villanova, Temple, uh, Montgomery County Community College, uh, Cheney State, all these, all of them were teaching classes inside the jail. And, you know, just in conversations with the counseling people, it's, I started to slowly believe that, you know what, maybe, maybe I can change my life through this. And, and maybe I can, you know, go down a different road, down a different path. And so I, I got into that program, got my uh, associate's degree while I was in that program, uh, transferred down to a halfway house in North Philly, and started at Temple as a junior and got my um, got my bachelor's at Temple. But the, what what it was, Charles, at a certain point, and I think this is this is a key point for for folks that are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated. At a certain point, I started to believe that I could really change my life, and I think that's that's the most important part because most people in there don't believe that they can change their life. They feel like you know, hey, I'm, I'm done. I got a record. I got this. So, you know, I might as well just keep doing what I'm doing. And I think it's really about changing your, your self-image, changing yourself, uh, you know, what you, your perception of yourself. And that's not an easy thing because most of the people in there are in this cycle where you go in, you know, don't do anything different or do anything to change your mentality, change your focus. You go back out and you're back in again because you're going out with the same same mentality you came in with. But th there were a lot of people that supported me along the way. There were a lot of people that uh, helped to convince me that I really could change my life and that I really could do something positive with my life. But I had to I had to believe that 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 was the key for me. I had to believe that I really could change. 
your book, the, the book that you and your uh, daughter have written, Jump, My Secret Journey from the Streets to the Boardroom, in it, you did not mention Edward White by name, and that angered his family. So how did you resolve that with the family of this 18-year-old? So in hindsight, um, you know, that was a mistake on my part. Before this became public, I should have made more of an effort to reach out to Mr. White's family. We had started to try to locate them and try to find them, but uh, New York Times beat us to it. But, but again, I take the blame for not reaching out sooner, not pushing harder to find and locate them. Um, but since that time, uh, I have met with them. It was an amazing meeting for me. Um, they're an incredible family. And um, at the end of the meeting, uh, it was um, Mr. White's sister, his son, and his daughter. And at the end of the meeting, they all forgave me, which is the best I could have asked for. I mean, if nothing else comes out of this book for me, to get that forgiveness from, from Mr. White's family was the most important thing that I could have done. And, you know, at the end of the meeting, they all hugged me and, um, you know, and we agreed that uh, we're going to work together to come up with a way to memorialize him. Right now we're talking about a scholarship fund and we're looking at some other possibilities, but, uh, but it's been, it's been great for me to get that forgiveness from them. It's almost like, um, you know, that's kind of full circle. I feel like I've over the years, work to forgive myself. I think if I hadn't, I wouldn't have been able to kind of move forward. Uh, I feel like, um, you know, I've done everything to help hope that God forgives me. And now to have uh, Mr. White's family forgive me, that that to me is kind of the best I could have hoped for. You know, that seems like uh, that meeting had to be one of the most surreal things because you know, obviously you said they forgave you, but it could have went another way. So I wish, like, the grace that they showed you, uh, man, that that is so powerful for, for, the, for the white family. So that had to be surreal to be in there. It was, Charles. And, um, you know, they each uh, expressed their feelings. You know, each one of them individually expressed their feelings. Um, but then at the end of their comments, they each said, but I forgive you. And, uh, you know, again, like I said, I, I couldn't have couldn't have asked for, for more than that. That if nothing else, like I said, comes out of this this project at all, that that for me is like uh, the most amazing thing I could have asked for. Larry, a lot of times in interviews these days, uh, questioners say, hey, if the 72 year old Larry Miller could talk to the 16 year old. Larry Miller right now, what would he say? But let me ask you this. If you could talk to a 16-year-old who right now is thinking, a buddy of mine just lost his life, and I'm going to do something about it. There's, Look, there are folks in your shoes right now, Larry. What would you say to them? I would tell them that um, they will, and I have no doubt in my mind that at some point they will regret what they do, whatever they go out and do now. And if they, um, you know, part of the reason for writing this book is hoping that, uh, you know, there is a 16 year old Larry Miller out there about to do something crazy or stupid. And maybe this will make them stop and think for a minute or, you know, consider what they're about to do and, and realize that it's something that they will 
no question regret at some point in their life and they'll be sorry that they they did it and um you know i just hope that that this story uh, reaches some of those young kids we're in the process of connecting right now with the philadelphia juvenile justice center and they have a, a school a high school inside of the juvenile justice center you know th these kids are who i was at that point and maybe i can go in and and help them to understand that they do have options in their life. They do have the ability to change their life and move it in a different direction. You know, the other thing that I, I want to focus on out of this is the fact that, like, the program that I was involved in doesn't exist anymore. So if I was there today, I couldn't come out and do what I've done. Now, um, you know, in some states, they do have these type programs, but in Pennsylvania, it doesn't exist anymore. And I want to make sure that, um, you know, I'm a voice for that because, uh, like I said, if it wasn't for that program, I would not have been able to turn my life around and, and move in the direction that, that I have. So uh, that's one of the other things that I want to talk a lot about and kind of push on is to try to expand these type of programs. You know, uh, a guy who's a, a good person and a, and a casual friend, I like him a lot, Van Jones, he talks about stuff like that, about prison reform. And it's such a cyclical thing. You're running around, like you said earlier, it's just like, hey, come in, come out, come in, come out. There was a lady, uh, I can't think of her name right now. Uh, she did a great documentary about young guys who are in prison actually getting their degrees and things like that. It was really a powerful thing. And I'm not talking about guys who are going to be in jail their whole life. I'm talking, we need to come up with a system with guys who are going to get out in society can get an education while they are in jail if they're doing certain crimes. You agree with that? I agree 100%, Charles. And like I said, to me, you know, if, if it wasn't for the program that I was involved in, I, you know, I probably would have come out and been right back in the same stuff again. But that program allowed me or showed me that I had an opportunity to do something different, that if I applied myself and I, you know, got into it and, and really became serious about it, that I could change my life. And I, and I agree with you. I think... You know, some of the smartest, uh, most creative people I've ever met are people that I've, I've met in jail. And it is a cycle. From, I started going, going to jail when I was 13, 14 years old. And I grew up seeing guys, like there were guys I would never see them in the street. I go back to jail, they're there. You know what I mean? And we just kind of grew up seeing each other in and out of jail because we were part of that, that cycle. And, and uh, it's a tough cycle to break, but I think education, um, skill, trade skills. I mean, all these things, a friend of mine who was cutting my hair when we were in jail when I was 17, he got out, he got his barber license while he was there, got out, opened a shop, hired people. I mean, so I think just providing these opportunities for education, to learn skills, to your point, these are people that are gonna come back out into society anyway. It's to our benefit to try to make them positive, contributing members of society. Take me into that conversation when you sit your kids down and says, this is what I did. Because I know they're saying, Dad, are you serious right now? First of all, tell me the ages of your kids and tell me about that first conversation. So they're, they're all, like, like my youngest is uh, 34. Oh, okay. Yeah, so my kids are all, they're, they're all much older. But, um, my oldest daughter is the one that she, she's the one that I wrote the book with. And she's the one that pushed me to do this. And she's the one that 
got all the details and we worked on this together. My two younger kids, um, they kind of grew up uh, not knowing about my past, but they knew I had some kind of connection to jazz because I used to take. So there's a friend of mine that just got out after 52 years. Wow. And he was with he was there when I was there. And once I got out, I, I stayed in touch. I always went up to see him, spend time with his mother before she passed away. But I used to take my kids up to see him. So my kids grew up knowing him and going up to see him in jail. But they didn't know they didn't know my background. So my two younger kids were in uh, in Atlanta together uh, at high school. They were uh, Morehouse and Spelman. And I went down to see them and took them out to dinner. And just this was like years ago when they were still in college and just kind of shared with them. Uh, because I, my thing was, if this comes out, I'd rather I tell them now so that it does come out they're not just hearing it from the media or whatever. So they all kind of knew, but they didn't know the details. They didn't know all of the details of, of what happened and how it happened until now. I mean, they, they, they uh, you know, now they, they, they all kind of know the details, but they knew, uh, they, they, they knew some of what had happened. Would you share the story, please? I heard you tell Fat Joe in a, in about an hour long show in Philadelphia, when you guys were, we're on a stage and talking about this with your daughter. Um, but you talked about being in Portland. President Obama was going to come and speak. You were going to be there. And then the phone rang. So Obama was coming. He came, actually came out to Nike. This was his last year in, uh, in office. He actually came out to speak at Nike. The night before, there was like a reception deal for him. And, uh, and I got invited to it. And, I, and the whole time, I'm like, man, I don't know if I should do this or not. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure, you know, how, if I can pass the, the, the clearance. Um, but I go ahead and, and I give him my information. And the day before he's coming to town, I'm in my car. And uh, the guy who was handling all this, he gives me a call. He's like, hey, man, uh, you know, I was just talking with the Secret Service. He said, uh, he said what's your middle name? And I said, uh, Garland, which was my grandfather's name said garland he said oh, oh you good man he said there's this larry g willard dude that got all kind of felonies and stuff on his record and uh, but you're good i was like okay you know but they didn't put it together and i think part of that is just um who people know me as today they're like that can't be him you, you know what i mean yeah. and, and i think um i think that kind of helped them to not dig any deeper on it but i went into the, to the event and spent some time with obama can you describe the weight that's been lifted off you since uh, you came clean with this? Uh, it, it's it's been um, an incredible weight, Ernie. I, um, you know, carrying this around and being concerned and afraid that it's going to come out, and that you know, if it does come out, um, you know, what are people going to think, and how's it going to affect my career, and you know, just having all those all that angst carrying it around um, was 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 tough. To me, I'm kind of split. I feel a sense of having kept this in all this time to have it now out to the world is a little bit, you know, a little challenging for me because it's like, hey, I've been, I've been, I'm not used to, I'm still getting used to the fact that people know my my story, know my history. But the other side of that is it's been an incredible relief because now, you know, I don't have to worry about is this going to come out or is somebody going to find out. And, you know, also, 
one of the things that I, I've done over, over my career is I've always tried to go back and get back to the community, talk to young kids about, you know, how they can improve their lives. But I always felt like I was cheating them because I was only telling part of the story. I would talk to them about my career and going to school and all that, but I, I didn't include the part that I think for a lot of these kids was the most important part. And now I don't have to do that. Now I can share all of that with these young people and hopefully, you know, it'll have a positive impact on them. But, uh, but it's been an incredible, incredible relief to know that now I don't have to worry about it. And, you know, the other great thing about it is that most of the people that I consider friends and, and, you know, people that I consider I'm close to the response from all of them has been amazing. It's been supportive. It's been encouraging. And, you know, this just makes me feel more and more like I did the right thing by sharing the story. Okay, so uh, in my life with you at Nike, it's been Phil Knight, Howard White, Lynn Merritt, and obviously MJ. Coming clean to those four people had to be like, I need to tell you something. Because they've known you your whole business life. What was it like, I guess, coming out to those guys? So... MJ and uh, Phil Knight were, were the first two that I, you know, I, I was like, you know what, I got to share with these guys what I'm thinking about doing as far as this book is concerned. And I want them to hear this from me, not hear it from somebody else. And so I uh, I reached out to both, you know, shared the conversation with, with both of them. And they both, uh, MJ's first comment to me, because I said, hey, my daughter convinced me to do this. So his first comment was, I agree with your daughter. You need to share this story. And uh, I think it could be motivational. Same with Phil Knight. Phil was absolutely supportive and encouraging. And, hey, what can I do to help? And Nike has been been very supportive. Nike, the Jordan brand, have been very supportive of this whole process. H was hard for me to tell because, I, you know, I've been H was like, that's like my brother. He's like the black Ernie Johnson. He's the godfather. <laughs> he is. He is. He is. So it was tough to share with H because I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't want him to feel bad about the fact that I hadn't shared with him. But part of the reason I never said anything to H is because I didn't want to put him in a position where he wouldn't be able to say anything to Phil or MJ. So it's just, and again, I was just afraid to share it with anybody at that point. And Lynn, I, uh, I think I, I had a conversation, a phone call with Lynn and, and shared with him as well. So all of those those four people I, were, were four key people for me to share with. And I think if uh, if definitely, you know, Phil H or, 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 or MJ had said, hey, I don't think you should do this, I, I probably would have been reluctant to do it. But they, they all were supportive in saying, hey, you know, you need to tell this story. It can be uh, it can be beneficial to to some people. In terms of your career, Larry, and again, you and Chuck go back a long way. But when you look at Jordan Brandy and look at the impact and the influence, man, what's the secret? What hit you? What was the vision? Well, you know, in the beginning, it was it was, it was a challenge when we were starting to build the Jordan brand because you know we looked at uh, so so the formula and Charles knows this. The formula was hey, we make this cool shoe. We do some cool advertising with Bugs Bunny or Spike Lee and, or somebody. And then MJ wears the shoe 82 games and into the playoffs. And when we were about to start this was when MJ was about to retire from the Bulls for the last time. And so people were like, hey, this is not going to work because you're taking a big piece of the formula out. 
And um, and it was a challenge. But H was one of the main proponents of the fact that, hey, I think we can build something here around this logo. We can create a brand. He was the one actually who suggested me for the job. You know, we, we spent a lot of time early on coming up with our vision and what we wanted to create. And we ended up, the idea, it basically came down to we wanted to create the Michael Jordan of brands. We wanted the brand to represent the things that MJ represented both on and off the court. And that was our focus. And I think the secret sauce for us was having his involvement. I think he he brings a certain perspective to it. And the way that he looks at it is like, hey, this brand is representing me. This is me. So I want to make sure you guys are doing what you need to do. And so so he, he was he was definitely involved in creating the vision for where we wanted to take the brand. And and like I said, it was we, we wanted to create the, the Michael Jordan of brands. And uh, it's been amazing to see how how this has evolved over the years. I mean, just to see, you know, how how the business has grown, just to see the impact that the Jordan product and the Jordan brand has you know, on a, on a, a broad basis around the world. It's just, uh, it, it amazes me every day. And I'm just grateful that I was able to be a part of it. You know, it's, it's really crazy. Uh, I remember sitting in 1985, 84, 85, I think it was the summer before 84, and just <laughs> sitting in Beaverton, Oregon, and me and Michael, and just like, well, this is our vision and like to see it 40 years, basically 40 years later, it's just phenomenal and amazing. I mean, I remember when I first got my signature shoe in like in the late 80s, and then the, the look what Michael has done with his Jordan brand. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. And I always tell people, Michael Jordan is the reason we're all making this money. It started with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Those two guys, I've always said, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird saved the NBA. They thought mm-hmm. it was a bunch, it was too black, bunch of thugs, bunch of druggies. And then when Magic and Bird came in, things started to change. And then Michael took it to a whole nother level. But the main thing he did, people forget, athletes were not doing commercials. Nobody had signature shoes. That's all because of Michael Jordan. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I always tell people, man, this guy made all of us a lot of money. I mean, people see like, well, everybody's got a signature shoe now. Everybody got a deal. I'm like, nobody had a deal before Michael came along. Mm-hmm. And that, and I tell people, that's why, in my opinion, he's the GOAT. He made everybody a lot of money. No question. And uh, and again, just to see how the brand continues to resonate, like a lot of things have helped, helped do it. I think uh, Space Jam over the years, kids still watch Space Jam, and that connects kids to MJ. The last dance, I think, was an amazing boost to the to the business because you know, I had people like calling me like, man, my 12 year old daughter who, who never asked about Jordans wants some Georgia now. You know, what I mean, and, and so it's just been it's been amazing for me to just see how widespread the brand has become uh, on a global basis. Really. Larry Miller, it's been great of you to spend so much time with us. And look, I know that since the. Uh since this came out in Sports Illustrated, since you decided to make this decision, since you know that, that book, 12 Years in the Making with your daughter, that you decided to let the world know about this, you've had to tell and retell and retell that story in settings like this. And I know that can be wearying at times. Thanks for just being so honest and upfront with us on that painful saga, but it's also 
again, as we began this segment, it's it's one of redemption, it's one of forgiveness, it's one of grace. It's, look, but not for the grace of God go I, okay? And that's the story. We appreciate you. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and, um, you know, you know, have, have the opportunity to talk with you guys who, uh, you know, two people I admire. And it's been great for me to have an opportunity to be here with you guys in the steam room. <laughs> hey, as I said to you in my text, man, uh, I'm proud to call you a friend. Hopefully a lot of young kids will read this book because, man, it, I, I'm just proud to call you a friend. I appreciate that, Charles. Same, same here, my brother. Same here. Larry Miller, thank you much. Thank you, guys. Take care. Yes, yeah, sir. You too. That sounds like Quentin, the UGA grad. It does. My man's a teacher. I respect teachers, admire teachers. Thank you all the teachers out there and anybody who served in the service. Much respect. And thanks to anybody who's been a legendary producer of Inside the NBA for many, many years, and that would be Tim Kiley. Okay. Hi, Chuck. How you doing, Nolan Ryan? I'm good. I'm getting better, and uh, I won't be throwing fastballs like we talked about, but, you know, just I can raise my arm over my head. Yeah, how's your range of motion right now? What are you supposed – look at you. Look That's at good. You. Like Ernest Angley. <laughs> Heel. Heel. Hey, I used to watch Ernest Angley every Saturday Foul night. Foul nicotine <laughs> demon come out. Let the evil spirit come out. You Put know, your hand on the television you know, you, know, you know why I watched that? Because I went there because it came on before wrestling. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> so these that, are the things that we discovered. No, seriously. All the, it, it came on Saturday night, but wrestling came on. Shout out to my boy Ric Flair. That's the only reason. Junk, my man, Junkyard Dog. Oh, yeah. Hey, uh, the Four Horsemen. Oh. That, the Four Horsemen were my guys back in the day. Ernest Angley had some moss, didn't he? Oh, yeah. No, I think it's really let, the e- let the evil spirit come out! I <laughs> So you talked about football. Yes. That was exciting. So I did not get to see the first game because I was working. Shout out to my two sponsors, Dick Sporting Goods and Capital One. I was shooting commercials. Shout out to y'all. Thanks, Dick can you, Sporting can Goods. Can you get a a thought out without <laughs> no. thanking somebody or dropping a company's name. Can you just say, hey, I was working. Uh, I, I missed the first game. Wait, so... I, I No, apparently we, you can't. Oh, wait, yeah, we no, work no, with I, a fool who's going to every commercial. I can't give a shout-out to my two sponsors? That's true. Oh, I Subway, too. To, Subway, thank you, Subway. Chuck, refresh, I was thinking... Refresh, 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 refresh. Chuck, okay. I was thinking... Uh-oh. I was actually thinking of you, Charles's as uh, Mahomes took him down the field in 13 seconds. What can you do in 13 seconds? I'm <sighs> Say really... first of all, like 18 times. I'll tell you what, man. <laughs> I feel so – like Josh Allen and Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier. Deserve better fate. They deserve better fate. Because Josh Allen, man, he's a stud. I can watch him play football. Big, strong, fast, got a cannon. That was beautiful to watch. But Pat Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and uh, Tyreek Hill – Hey, why don't you? Why do you kick off out of the end zone in that situation, with 13 seconds left? Why don't you line something that's going to hit the ground, bounce around a little bit, make somebody that's feel exactly, it? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100. percent There's there were some some weird decisions made, and with with that time left. Yeah. I mean, you you know, given the the time that he had, and that you have that kid who's a pinball machine. Yeah. Oh. You know, and Kelsey's getting open down Kel- the middle. I, I, Kelsey, and, you know, man, he's just a monster stud yeah. to watch. And but Hill, if he get it, you just tried to get a finger on him. <laughs> and, and, that, and, and really, that play to Kelsey before the field goal was like Mahomes just could have said, 
We're throwing it to Kelsey. Yeah. See, yeah. Stop it. <laughs> but, yeah. And I mean, didn't it everybody was, in the we, joint absolutely, know this ball's got With to go to timeouts the timeouts yeah. and all that other stuff? Yeah. Uh-huh. Did you see what Andy Reid said? No. He he said about Mahomes, when it's grim, be the grim reaper. I was pulling for Buffalo at that game. Boy, to be that close, Chuck Street, oh, too. Oh, man. You're talking, you're talking I about thought a, they long won twice. Fl- a long flight oh. back thought, like, to Buffalo. But that's the thing. I thought both teams won it twice. Yeah, it just you, 25 you, points in two minutes. That's crazy. And listen, on just great plays. No question. It wasn't no fluke plays. And my man Gabriel Davis, I think his name, uh-huh. he was – how about, the, how about the move he put on that? Oh, my man was the corner. Oh, yes. Oh. I mean, for, he called, I mean, frightening. Four TDs. Gabriel Davis was a flat out stud. I mean, but man, that was painful to watch if you're a Buffalo fan. Well, that's my question then. You guys asked Candace last week what she would change if she was commissioner of the WNBA or in charge of it. Looking at the overtime, Buffalo never got the ball. Yeah. Which is the way it always used to be in sudden death overtime. Yeah, but you so, whoever so, so scores you think, first. So, yeah, but so you think a coin flip? That's why they changed it because a coin flip should not decide a game. Who gets the this, ball first? Yeah, yeah. That's that's not a way to decide a game. This is what they should do. Buffalo should have a chance to get the ball, and they have to score a touchdown. They should get the ball. And I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, because I'm I'm saying that's the way it used to be a long time ago. Yeah. It just used to be. Hey, it's sudden death. And it, yeah. you know, good luck to you. But I can see that too. So look, if you're going to play that kind of a game and then somebody wins the flip, mm-hmm. it happened against uh, Kansas City yeah. when Tom Brady got the coin flip and scored a touchdown in the AFC Championship game like three or four years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think Kansas City petitioned to have the rule changed. Yeah. But <laughs> now yeah. they're happy that it wasn't yeah. changed. Yeah, but see, as great as Josh Allen and the Bills played, they should have got a chance. Uh, that's the thing I don't like. They say, okay, they scored a touchdown. You should get one possession to score a touchdown. If you do not score a touchdown, then the game is over. Would you change it to the college game? No, that's ridiculous. Put it on the 25-yard line. Just ridiculous. Yeah, I don't like that. That's ridiculous, that college thing. I saw that. I saw. So I thought it was stupid. And then I saw it in person at the Alabama-Auburn game. And it was even stupider in person. Okay, now you've got to go for two. Yeah. And now you've got, you know, there's so many things change on that yeah. on that college. No, I don't I no. don't think you go that direction. But do you play a full 15-minute quarter? That's the thing. Maybe You're you beating do, those maybe guys you up. Maybe you do that. Well, I think you play the way Ernest said it earlier, well, the first score wins the game. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's fair because you it, all you got to do is you probably got to have three good plays in your infield goal range. Yep. They realized it was unfair. Then they changed it. I hate when people just afraid to admit, like, yeah, that's not fair. It wasn't fair when it happened to Kansas City, and it wasn't fair to Buffalo. It's all right to change it, but you only do that during the playoffs. Right, absolutely. You don't do that during the regular season. No, you can't. You do, but playoffs, when your season is going to be over, you try to make it as fair as possible. Because I, I, I'm a big proponent of replay because no disrespect. First of all, you got guys who are 50, 60 years old trying to chase Tyreek Hill. Like, wait, let me see if Tyreek Hill is in. I'm running beside Tyreek Hill or Travis Kelsey. You're going to miss plays. I'm a big proponent of replay. It's all right to change the rules. I like that. I I agree. I agree. I didn't like the way that that ended, that they didn't get the ball. That kid deserved a chance to get the ball. All right. We're having a lot of talking heads talking about the AFC-NFC championship games. 
So, fellas, I have a formula for the two games this weekend. Guaranteed two wins. Oh, my goodness. Of the 212 this is, active players. This is why players, he's legendary. That's right. Of the 212 <laughs> players that are active for this game, in the four games, there are seven from UGA and two from Auburn. So, with that theory in mind, Kansas City's going to beat Cincinnati because Kansas City has two players from UGA and since he's only has one. I'm I'm with that. Is that some scientific BS? Yeah, this is this is a formula. I mean, we should be on oh, first take hey, arguing hey, this. You know total, what? total you, agreement. You, you know what? I want to say something too since you brought that up. Yes. Joe Burrow is a monster stud. He is. Like we haven't even mentioned him cuz that other game was so good. Hats off to Joe Burrow. What he's doing in Cincinnati. And you know, you that I don't kid even Chase is he's oh, Chase, Chase is a monster. But what Joe Burrow is doing to take a First of all, I can't believe they had never won a playoff game on the road. That's crazy, isn't it? I know. So Matthew Stafford, Georgia guy. How many other Georgia guys are on they that Rams? They have three total, and the Niners, the Niners have, have one. Take the Rams. So you're going to have the Ernie's got KC well, and the Rams. Well, you know who you that, got. You know that San Francisco's beating them six straight times, correct? Mm-hmm. Which is crazy, I might add. That's unbelievable. And then the last game of the season, when they went in there to have to win, and they were down 17 to zip. I see Chuck's been doing his research on, on his bets. I I just don't you know. You call watching TV research? Yeah. No, I, oh, I, yeah. I actually study these teams because I'm going for I'm the – hey, I'm going with the Cincinnati Bengals. That's against me. Okay, and I'm going. I got the Rams slaughtering the Niners because I got three other guys playing for me. I'm going with the Niners with Pretty Jimmy and <laughs> Pretty that, Jimmy that, Garoppolo. That, yeah, Pretty Jimmy, which puts which puts. Hey, I'm going with Pretty Jimmy Garoppolo. 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 Well, he knew what I meant. In that. Yeah, that's, that's a, right. Hey, that's a pretty Italian. <laughs> I have never. That's the first time Eddie, I've heard that description say, of the, the Niners. Word, I don't read them. I hey, just write them. Hey, that's a pretty Italian. <laughs> Remember that, TK. Chuck, your original pick was the Packers. <laughs> hey, San Francisco uh, kicked their butt. That was awful. That was a choke job. You got Jimmy G. You got a score. Goal. You got a score. That defense played fantastic. They scored. The first play, the first series, yep, and scored three more points, not going to win. And uh, that San Francisco, that defense was great. San Francisco defense is great. My boy Aaron Rodgers, he got to put more than three points on the board. He's 0-4 in championship games Well, since the Super Bowl. But, and the thing is bad, the last two been at home. They got beat last year. Tampa Bay came in there and beat them this year. San Francisco came in there. I mean, you can't lose home games like that. You can't. Especially in the first round. Agree with you, Chuck. All right, boys, that's it. KC will win. The Rams will win. Thanks to Ernie for Ugga's support. Certainly. Back happy with to, the steam room. Happy to do it with the uh, with the national champion. <laughs> Georgia, Georgia Bulldogs. Bulldogs. <laughs> so we got the best college football team. You got the number the, one ranked college basketball team. We are well represented. And we got legendary. legendary. Final four. Here we come. That's it. Where is it this year? Nolans. 
Yeah. Po' boy. Give Dogs. me some gumbo. That's, That's it. A, oh, big time. Man. Give me some we gotta gumbo. We got to get one of those. Well, we we were down there a few years ago. We did the one of those big boils, the crawfish boil. Oh, we got to do boil. that. Yeah. With those potatoes yeah. and corn. Let's move March Madness up oh, to yes. next week. <laughs> Thanks, boys. Certainly, legend. Thanks, kid. Chuck and Ernie in steam room. Come and join us in the steam room. Chuck and Ernie in the steam room. Leave your towel on in the steam room. Chuck and Ernie in the steam room. Chuck and Ernie in the steam room. Leave your towel on in the steam room. <laughs> That's actually better singing than your karaoke voice. Oh. Was, yeah, when you don't try to overdo it. And, and the first part was from... Dustin from Arizona a couple never, of years ago. I'm glad one of my homeboys came up with that catchy tune. Yeah. Um, not to be confused with Dustin, my son-in-law. Greatest son-in-law on earth, by the way. Maggie's husband. Oh. The D-Train, we call him. The D-Train. Are you serious right now? <laughs> of course. I'm serious. The D-Train. D- does your son-in-law not have a name that you call him? Uh, no. I refer to him as, hey, how's he doing? Yeah. I'm just kidding, y'all. I'm just joking. I got a great son-in-law. Shout out to Illy. So you shorten it up a little bit. You got a little something uh, for Ilya. Yeah. Illy. Illy. Illy, what up, Illy? Doesn't exactly have the D-Train kind of thing going, <laughs> but there you go. Um, D-Train. I can't wait to see D-Train again at the Black Masters. Good dude. Um, yes, he is a nice kid. So, uh, we always wrap up the program with uh, Chuck's old school. Let's hope we get better calls than last week. Oh, come week. on. But we always have good no, calls. No, they were rude Dude, to me. They were, they were hating on me. They were hating on me last week. I don't remember what they were hating on you about. Remember, I'm old brown eyes. And oh, oh well, no, well, you brought that on yourself. So, no, don't hate. Stop it. Okay. Stop. Hey, stop hating on me. Stop it. That number for Chuck's answering machine, 404 987 Zero three three zero. Commit it to memory. First call. You've reached Charles Barkley. Leave a message, America. Hey guys, it's Suzanne from Olympia, Washington. I just found you guys this year, and I actually drove from Orange County all the way back to Olympia, and I listened to your podcast the entire time, and it cracked me up. My favorite line from you guys is. If it's free, it's for me, or if it's free, I'll take three. And I also love swag when I go to conventions. I'm a speech pathologist. I love getting free pens and tchotchkes. So my question to you guys is, what is uh, one of the best or the best swag that you guys have ever gotten? Ooh, the best swag. Well, number one, I don't know where Olympia is, but it's a travesty and a disgrace. We don't have an NBA team in Seattle. Okay. Seattle is one of my favorite cities in the world. Have not been back. You used to play out there in Key Arena, didn't yeah. you? Yes. That You know, it's so funny you said that because I was telling somebody the other night, Chicago Stadium, Boston Garden, and Key Arena. Also known as Boston Garden. Right, Garden. That's what I said, right? No, you said Boston Garden. Okay, Garden. Okay. And Key Arena are the three toughest arenas I've ever played in as far as great energy, hostility. I love playing in those three places. And it's a travesty and a disgrace that we don't have an NBA team in Seattle. So I don't know where Olympia is, but it's <laughs> got to be close. But so. Best swag? I'm, I'm wearing some of the best swag. 
our friends at uh, at Nike and at Jordan Brand have uh, have seen fit to throw some shoes our way from time to time. Yeah, uh, that's true. And uh, Nike those always... are nice. I like you know it's it happens sometimes. I mean you know. I don't know why, but we do. I get some get of some my nice stuff. Yeah, I know. That's the best thing about being famous, all the free crap you get. But she's right. If it's free, it's for me, or, or I'll take three. Uh, I think for me. Uh, Is it food related? Best swag you ever got? No, food not related. Okay. When I think when you go to golf tournaments, they give the best swag. Nice. Because I bet it, at Tahoe they take care Tahoe of Tahoe is they? amazing. They, yeah. You can get a suit, you can get a bunch of shirts. I mean, they give you because all the sponsors give you something, and a lot of it is golf related. So to answer your question, young lady, it's probably for me. It's probably golf related when I go to a golf tournament. All right, next call. Thanks, Suzanne. Hey, Chuck, it's your favorite Auburn girl who didn't go to Auburn. Actually, went to Winthrop University and played soccer. Annie Lessonkirk in here. Annie. I just wanted to know. What are your thoughts on Auburn finally getting the number one ranking in basketball? Oh, Pretty dang geez. cool. Also. I want you to give some advice to Michael Kaplan, who's about to be a dad for the first time. Ernie, time in too. Much love, fellas. Love the steam room. Loyal steamer. Annie Lutz, signing out. Hey, 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 Annie's one of my favorite people. You already talked about Auburn with the number one ranking in our first of all. Well, it's never too so soon to talk to about it. So do start the yes, show we, and, and this yeah, bookend yes, Auburn yes, praise? Well, uh, I'd much rather hear your advice to Michael Kaplan. Okay, so number one shout out. Can't wait to see the number one team in the world play Saturday. Uh, Michael Kaplan, I hope that you have a little girl. Because, you know, I've seen Ernie with Maggie. And I'm the same way with Christiana. And Carmen. And Carmen. And Allison and, and Ashley. Yes, yes. I see, I've been in the limelight for 37 years. And so I've been around dudes all that time, mostly, obviously. And the relationship between a father and son is pretty cool. But man, let me tell you something. The relationship between dads and their daughters is on a whole nother level. Right you are, Chuck. I mean, it's uh, and I don't even know. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I don't even care. I don't even know why dudes don't even care about their boy kids. But I, they, I wouldn't say they, that no, that's no, the no. case. They, they do care about their boy kids. But that relationship between a dad and his daughter, it's on a whole nother level. Even if you name her after a mall. Even if you name her after a mall. Like, my daughter, she is a really sweet person. She's kind. She's considerate. She went to Villanova and Columbia, so she's got some brains. Not sure where she got that from. But I'm proud of her. I can't wait to be a grandpa. And it's less, I'm on the shot clock right now. A couple mm. months now. Wow. The first week of March. Yeah. So I'm officially a be old. When you grandpa, you are officially old. I remember those. I remember those days. You're waiting for that first one too. And yeah. Cap, you know, our our producer of of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, he married an Auburn girl too. It's getting really, really close. She, she, he married up. Yeah. He she he married an Auburn girl. Here's here's my advice to you, Cap. When that day comes, get a nanny. Yes, honey. Yes, honey, which whatever she wants, because she's going through something that we can't even begin to uh, understand. Whoa. Or are you milking that baby thing again? Making that baby thing. Milking again. it. Milk. Come on now. Remember, I told you. Come on Having now. a baby is not near as hard as playing basketball to sprain ankle. I've told you that. I know. 
You and, talk about some pain. I just want everyone to know that those are the words of Charles Barkley. I'm just letting you know, you ever tried to play basketball with a sprained ankle? I mean, the little baby thing only lasts a couple of minutes. You got to rub it down the court for two hours with a sprained ankle. That's some pain, brother. I'm just telling y'all. I'm working with this dude. <laughs> and hearing, hearing this. See, and then you complain about getting grief on the Chuck's answering machine. You just wait till next week I'm after just that. You. Hey, Ernie, I'm just telling you. Try to play basketball with a sprained ankle. Every step you take is like somebody shooting you in your foot. You have a baby. It's over in a couple minutes. You move on with life. Cap, you're going to be a great dad. Again, yes. um, when that day happens, it's whatever she says. It It's whatever she says goes. Yep. And, and we wish you the best. We, yes, we can't do. wait to see little Charles or little Charlene. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I would just I'd like to answer the phone at the answering machine this week just to hear some of the responses to this. <laughs> Man, that could be an, an entire show in and of itself. Thanks for being with us today, loyal steamers. We love y'all. See you.